We are taking a break from our series in Hebrews, so I invite you to take your Bibles and open to 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you're using the Bible in the pew rack in front of you that looks like this, it's on page 991. Also mention, if you don't have a Bible, this Bible in the pew rack is our gift to you. You can take it home. If you don't believe me, there's a little note in the front that says you're allowed to take it home. We want everyone to have an accessible copy of God's Word, so uh, you're welcome to that. I'm going to read 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 10. In the sermon, I'll be focusing on verse 8, but we'll read the whole passage. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 10. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is, in pleasing, it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle, I am telling the truth and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let's be seated as we pray. Father, we come to you very aware of our need for you and asking that by your Spirit you would take your word and quicken our hearts. Make us to see. Help us to grow in the ways you want us to grow. Give us your word today. Help us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. I am a man. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm an elder in this church. I'm a man, and God has put a lot of weight on my shoulders. I often feel that my shoulders are not broad enough for all that God has put upon me. But being in this church, I've learned a lot about what it means to be a man. From older men in this church, men like Nelson Potter for John McIntyre, and also from a growing company of younger men who are mutually sharpening and encouraging one another. My sermon this morning draws on what the Scriptures say to men about being a man. But though the message is about men, it is a message for all of us. And I hope by the end everyone here will sense that God has spoken to them from his word, from this passage. But I want to begin the sermon by putting a somewhat jarring picture in your mind, especially 
in the minds of the men here. Men, imagine that an intruder has broken into your home and he has malicious intent. Your wife and your children are huddled in the corner of a room and you stand as the one person between the perpetrator and your family. At that point, if you can imagine it, there would be something primal that arises within you. It's the instinct to do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to shield your family, to protect them, to allow your presence to create a place of safety for them. Now, in the day and place we live, it's unlikely that any of us will ever face that kind of scenario. But even though that's true, it's something we as men instinctively get. We are a shield. Part of what it means to be a man is to provide a place of safety. And so that's the image I want in your mind as we go into the sermon. This image of you as a shield. But I want to broaden our understanding behind the idea, beyond just the idea of protecting our family against some intruder. Because I want us to think of our presence as father, as husband. Our presence should bring a general sense of safety and security to our families. Our shadow should be a welcome place of peace and rest. That, in part, is what God has designed us to be as men, a shield, a place of safety, one in whose shadow our family can thrive. The Bible refers to men as the heads of their home and the heads of the church, and that's a large part of what it means when it says that. So the question is, How do we do this? I mean, it's something, if if you're hearing me this morning as a man, it's something you want to do. There's something within you that wants to be that kind of man. But I know for myself, even though that's what I want to be, I try and then I fail. So how do we do it? That's the question I want to look to the Scriptures to answer today. And we're going to look particularly at two passages, two verses. 1 Timothy 2.8 and 1 Peter 3.7. First, I want to look at how these two passages, these two verses are similar. And then I want to draw three principles for how we are to be a shield to our families and to our churches. So let's look just briefly first at 1 Timothy 2.8. If you've closed your Bibles, open them back up. We are going to be looking into the text. I just want to make a couple quick observations about 1 Timothy 2. First, even though our verse is 1 Timothy 2.8, the passage really begins back in verse 1, which I already read, and I'm going to pick up in the middle of verse 2, that we may lead a peaceful life and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, this is good 
and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. You hear, God wants all His people to live a quiet, godly, and dignified life. And He wants us to do this for the sake of other people coming to know Him and what He's like and coming to saving faith. Now, as that unfolds, there are some particular applications for men and for women, respectively. So, verse 8 gives the particular application of that for men. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And then verses 9 to 15, likewise also the women, give the implications for women. Both applications to the men and to the women relate to our character. For women, it relates to how they adorn themselves, saying, Character matters more than costly attire, and how they listen within the setting of the church. For men, it relates to how we pray, and particularly in this context, how we pray in church. But did you notice the focus isn't so much on prayer per se as the character that we bring to our prayers? Holiness, the absence of anger or quarreling. So just thinking about 1 Timothy then, putting it all together, God wants everyone to lead, everyone to lead a quiet and dignified life for the sake of the world being saved. And he wants the men to pray with hands that are holy, with lives that are free from anger or discord. And he wants the women to adorn themselves and listen with a certain modesty and meekness and godliness. So that's 1 Peter 2. Now, flip in your Bibles to... First, that was 1 Timothy 2. Now, flip in your Bibles to 1 Peter 3. If you're using the same Bible that was in your pew rack, it's on page 1015. Now, we'll be zeroing in on verse 7. 1 Peter 3, 7, which says, Likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, as we look at this verse, we're going to actually find there are several key parallels between this passage and our passage in 1 Timothy. This one is speaking more to the home environment instead of the church environment, but beyond that, the parallels are striking. First, look at how this section begins up in 2, 13 to 15. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 15. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to the governor as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This also is a teaching about how, it relates to the author- how we relate to the authorities around us. That we should have a certain submissiveness that will be winsome to those who despise the faith. Do You see, it's the same kind of vibe, the same idea going on there. There's a certain way we carry ourselves with regard to the authorities that portrays to the world, shows to the world something winsome and powerful about the gospel. Second, 
second parallel in both passages, both wives and husbands or men and women are addressed. So in this passage in 1 Peter, verse three, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, address women or wives, and then verse 7 addresses husbands. Notice that the word to the women is similar to what we saw in 1 Timothy. The focus is on how they adorn themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit. Verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or of clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Almost the same as what was there in 1 Timothy, right? And the word to men is similar too. As we relate to our wives, we should show them particular understanding and honor. Even though they are physically weaker, they are equal heirs of God's grace. And so we should show them understanding and honor. Understanding and honor. You see how those are almost the exact opposite of anger and quarreling? Understanding of someone and anger don't usually coexist. It's one or the other. Quarreling with someone and honoring them don't coexist. It's one or the other. So what's being said to the women and what's being said to the men is similar. But here's the key connection. This is kind of the interesting one that got me thinking. Again, the men's prayers are addressed. Did you see that last line in 3.7? So that your prayers may not be hindered. You have this similar context. And again, God addresses men as prayers. People who pray. So just summarizing 1 Peter then. God wants us to lead a submissive life for the sake of winning those who are hostile to the faith. He wants the men to pray unhindered by any lack of understanding or dishonoring of our wives. And he wants women to adorn themselves with a quiet and gentle spirit. The parallels are clear. It's almost, this passage is almost identical to 1 Timothy, just the one addresses the church and the other addresses the family. And I want to say, as I was thinking about what to talk about today, it was, it was this connection between these two passages that really got its hooks into me. It's, it's the connection between these two passages that really compelled me on Family Day weekend, on the Sunday that we're going to dedicate our children to explore the importance of the men in our church as it relates to how they pray for their families and how they pray for the church. I want to go back to that opening image. Men called to be shields, to be a place of safety, shade, and protection. In our shadow, our wives, our children, even our church should thrive. And again to that opening question then, so how does God want me to be a shield? 
by lifting weights at the gym and being big enough to fight off the baddest dude? I don't. (laughs) By calling the shots and making really wise and insightful decisions that are just really good for our family. By owning a rifle and being careful to show it to any man who shows up trying to date my daughter. Well, maybe that third one goes without saying. I pastored in Texas for five years, you know. There it's not a joke. But interestingly, and obviously, none, are the, none of those are the things that this, these two passages are suggesting about how we are a shield. The first and foremost way that we are a shield to our family is by praying for them. The first and more, most important way we are a shield to our broader church is by praying. Now, I'm not wives are called to pray too. Children are called to pray. All people in the church are called to pray. That's obvious in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1 is calling everyone to pray. But God when he addresses men, he tells them and them specifically to pray. So I want to say it this strongly then. Men, we are the primary intercessors for our home and our church. Our effective prayers create a platform for God's blessings to pour down upon our family. Your number one job, my number one job as a dad, as a husband, As a grandfather, as a man in this church, our number one job is to offer effective prayers. Our effective intercession brings blessing upon our family. If you've been here long, it's no secret that I love to eat good food. It works its way into most sermons. And I love to explore new restaurants. In fact, for Valentine's Day last week, Karen and I discovered another gem that we're excited to go to again. So here's my unstudied opinion about what allows a restaurant to be successful or not. It's all about the customer experience. Create an incredible customer experience and the restaurant will thrive. Fail to create an incredible customer experience and the restaurant will die. Men, so it is with us. Do we want this church to thrive? Do we want our family to thrive? Then we need to give ourselves to effective prayer. If you and I are effective prayers, 
We create a platform for our families to thrive, and if we are not effective prayers, we fail to create God's designed platform for them to thrive. Now, I want to be careful in how I say that, because God works despite us all the time. And I know so many people who, by God's grace, have been able to thrive without a dad who prayed effectively for them. But in almost every one of those cases, it was despite the compromised position their father put them in. God's grace, thank you, God, is bigger than my failures as a dad. But God would prefer that his grace work through my parenting, through my leadership, than despite it. Prayer is a big deal. Why is it our number one job? Why is it such a big deal? I think it's because of its, it's an expression of our dependence upon Him. Did you notice the posture that He calls them to? Lifting up holy hands. Who has this posture? It's a beggar. A beggar, someone who is in complete need, has this posture. Hands lifted up. It's a posture of someone expressing complete dependence. You see, my first job isn't to be strong, self-sufficient James who can be so wise and so loving and so gracious and so capable that I get the Dad of the Year award. My first job is to express my complete dependence upon God. My shoulders are not broad enough for this church. My shoulders are not broad enough for my family. That's why our first job is to go to God in prayer. In 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about how we're the heads of our family. We are to be those shields. But it also says that we have a head. We have a shield under whom we find safety and protection. And that head for us is Christ. Men, we must find our safety, our peace, our stability in Christ before we can ever think that we're going to be able to provide that for someone else. So our job, number one, is prayer because in prayer we acknowledge that our shoulders are not broad enough. We find our peace and stability in Christ before we ever provide it for someone else. Men, our job, number one, is prayer. A restaurant provides or thrives by providing a great customer experience. A family A church thrives when the men are effective prayers. Now you might have noticed I've been using that word effective to qualify prayers. Not just any prayer will do. In 1 Peter 3 we saw that it says certain things can hinder our prayers. And in 1 Timothy 2 it calls for a certain kind of prayer. According to these two passages, what makes a prayer unhindered or what makes a prayer 
effective. Back to my restaurant example, I can't stop talking about food. What allows for a great customer experience? I'd say two main things, great food and great service. Likewise, I think there are two keys to effective, that is, unhindered prayers. And the first from 1 Timothy 2.8 is holy hands. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands. In a certain sense, the next phrase defines holy hands without anger or quarreling. But that anger and quarreling, I think, is a, a subset of the bigger category of holy hands. And I'm going to focus on that subset in my next point. So for this point, I want to consider other aspects of holy hands. That is, we're to lift hands that are unstained by the passions of the flesh, unstained by lust. Lust for sex, lust for money, lust for substances. I choose those three because each of those lusts is listed in chapter 3 when discussing the qualifications for an overseer and for a deacon. You might have noticed when I read chapter 2, verse 2, that we're to lead godly and dignified, dignified way lives. In 3.4, for overseers, it talks about them being dignified. In 3.8, for deacons, it says likewise they should be dignified. Dignified men, then, avoid these lusts. And so that's why I think in 2.8, when it talks about lifting holy hands, it's talking about, in part, the passions of the flesh. And so in light of that, I want to be very direct with us. And I'm, I'm going to say you to the men, but I want you to know I'm under this word too, and I'm saying it to myself. Let me be really direct. If you are looking at pornography, if you are dabbling in an affair, if you're watching scintillating movies, if you're harboring lustful thoughts, your prayers will be hindered. Sexual lust inhibits the effectiveness of your prayers for your family and your church. And so does the lust for money. So if you are putting pursuit of the next promotion ahead of your family, if you deeply crave the respect and lifestyle that come with wealth. If you find it difficult to give sacrificially to God's work, if you find yourself turning to forms of gambling with the hopes of striking it rich, your prayers will be hindered. Lust for money inhibits the effectiveness of your prayers for your family and your church. And so do addictions. If you are careless enough with alcohol that you sometimes teeter on the edge of drunkenness, if you can't help but at certain times turning to illegal drugs, if you're looking to substances to find relief from the demands of this life, 
your prayers will be hindered. Addictions inhibit the effectiveness of your prayers for your family and your church. We are called to lift holy hands in prayer. It's not simply our job to be the primary intercessor. It's our job to intercede with holy hands. It's not a coincidence that the tide in our church started to shift. Real powerful growth when several men in our church renounced various sins of the flesh and began praying with holy hands. Effective prayers depend upon holy hands. That's the first key to effective, unhindered prayers. And the second is meekness. Or to use the language of our verse, without anger, or quarreling. Or to use the language of 1 Peter 3.7, to live with our wives in an understanding way, showing honor to them. Or even to dip into Colossians and use the language of Colossians 3.21, to not provoke our children. No anger, no quarreling. Be understanding. Show honor to our wives. Do not provoke our children Seems like God's maybe zeroed in on some besetting sins of men. But what is the underlying issue between our anger and our, or behind our anger and our argumentativeness? Isn't it self dependence, self reliance? Think about it. I only get angry because people don't do what I say. I only quarrel because people are dumb enough to not agree with me. I'm not understanding because my wife and children shouldn't be so emotional. I don't show honor because they don't show respect to me. I only provoke because I'm trying to figure out some way to change their bad habits. And the excuses pile up. And our prayers are hindered. And our relationships are damaged. And instead of being a conduit for blessing, I become a conduit for destruction in my family and possibly in my church. And all this would be saved sorry, solved, if we were meek. If we would truly depend upon God instead of relying on ourselves. If we would take our own agendas, crumple them up, throw them out, and trust God's agenda, which is so often different from ours. If we would stop pursuing our kingdom and start slowing down, and caring for the people entrusted to our care. So you see what I mean? We need to move from self-dependence and self-reliance 
to God-dependence and God-reliance. Like beggars, right? We're to lift holy hands in desperation to the one who is our head, who is our shield. We need to be humble, contrite, lowly in heart. If we're not, it affects our prayers. And it's not simply true of our family relationships. It's true in all of our relationships. An arrogant, angry heart that leaves a wake of pain and hurt affects our prayers. That's why in Matthew 8, Jesus says that if your brother has something against you and you're kneeling at the altar, leave the altar and go and make things right with your brother. That's why in Matthew 6, when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, he says, if you're unable to forgive those who wrong you, you shouldn't expect God to answer your prayer to him that he forgive you. Anger, quarreling, lack of understanding, unforgiveness, these sins hinder our prayer life. So we must be meek. We must trust God and his agenda, not ourselves and our agenda. Central to a restaurant thriving is the customer experience, and the two keys to customer experience are good food, good service. Central to our families thriving is our effective prayers. And the two keys, according to these passages of effective prayers, are holy hands and a God-reliant meekness. Your family and your church need your prayers. But your actions may be hindering your prayers. Now, broadly in the Bible, there are three main reasons why our prayers are not answered. One, we might be asking for the wrong things. God only gives us what's best. Second, we could be asking with wrong motives. We seek our kingdom instead of God's. And third, and this is the one that we're focusing on today, that we're learning today, we are hindered because of our character. And the effects of our character upon our prayers isn't just taught in 1 Peter 3.7. We already saw it coming through in Matthew 5 and Matthew 6. Psalm 66, 18 and 19 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. And James 5, 16 says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Men. Your family and your church need your effective prayers. So live holy lives. Rely on God instead of yourselves so you can treat others with grace, patience, and understanding. Now, by this point in the sermon, probably most of us men are feeling like we're coming under the knife, God's surgical knife. And I'll just be honest, that's how I felt this past week as I've dug into this passage. Not in a bad way. God's called me out and he's exposed me. He's convicted me. But I worry that it could leave some of us asking, then how can I ever pray? 
I mean, these sins just so riddle my heart. How can I ever be a blessing? I failed, I failed, I failed, James. Now I know. I failed. But listen, if that's the posture of your heart as you come to God, remember, you're coming actually with the right posture. Remember, our hands are extended. We're dependent. It's not about perfection. It's about coming to God humble and broken, realizing we need the blood of Jesus. I want to talk about the blood of Jesus because a man humbled by his own sin and dependent on the blood of Christ will not be arrogant, seizing with anger, unempathetic, and argumentative. Grieving over your sin and clinging to the cross and that kind of spirit are mutually exclusive. A man who realizes the wickedness of his own sin and the value of Christ's forgiveness that's been given to him will not harbor lust and greed in his heart. Those things are mutually exclusive. So this sermon isn't about dumping guilt on you for all the ways you failed. This sermon's not about saying you need to get yourself perfect before you pray. This sermon is about being rightly oriented towards Christ and His blood shed for us. Christ who is our head, who is our shield, who is our shelter, who is our Savior, who forgives us for the wrong we've done, who works despite us so often because He's gracious. It's about orienting ourselves to that God under the headship of Christ. That's what this sermon is about. And when we do this, when we are rightly oriented towards Christ and His blood, then we live with our wives in an understanding way then we don't provoke our children. Then we're not the one leaving a wake of arguments and destruction and bitterness in our path. We find shelter in Christ, and that's how we lift up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Not perfectly. This, is, this isn't like you either do or you don't. There's a sliding scale here, right? The more you press into the gospel and grasp it, the more those things fade. So if you hear anything this morning, men, Christ is your head. He is, he is your Savior. He's the one under His blood you find forgiveness and find strength. Stop depending on yourselves. Stop being the one who's just got to be good enough for my family and look to Christ and His forgiveness. Be oriented towards Him. Hold your hands out in dependence upon Him. Cry out to Him. And that's the kind of prayers that are effective. And if you, like me, have realized this morning that some of what you've been doing as a parent has been wrong, that you've contributed to creating a situation where it's hard for your family to thrive, your church to thrive, then do what I'm doing and repent and find that God's grace is sweet. And if you need to repent in front of grown children, do that because God's grace is sweet. 
Now, most of what I've been saying this morning has been directed at married men, though I guess that it's probably in some way spoken to all of us already. But since I've directed some pointed comments at married men, I just want to address three other groups very briefly. And first is married women. To begin with, you deserve an award. I didn't see anyone elbowing their husbands during this sermon. No women shouted amen at a key point. Good for you. Your husbands appreciate that. I'm guessing that some of you have heard certain points in this sermon and begun praying for your husbands that God would open their eyes, praying that God would convict them. Now, if if you see that your husband needs to change, that's a good step. Prayer is a good step. Let me encourage you not to play the role of the Holy Spirit. It's not your job, wives, to convict and change your husband. If you try to nag and coerce coerce him into being this kind of man, you'll actually be hindering the work of the Spirit, not helping him. Men are more likely to be this kind of shield, kind, humble, earnest in prayer, when they're looked to and respected, when they're trusted, now listen, when they're trusted despite their flaws, despite their sin, despite their shortcomings. Nobody here is married to a perfect man. We respect them despite that. So pray for your husbands, don't nag them, trust and respect them, and also just, I'd say, encourage them. When you see just a little spark, pour gasoline on it. If they want to pray with you, eagerly jump on board, even though most husbands do that in some awkward, poorly conceived way. Don't need to point all that out. Just get on board. If they take a step, to grow spiritually, maybe meeting with men for accountability or starting a core prayer group or something like that. Encourage it, even if it means another night out. And let me say that I know there are women whose children are grown, whose husbands haven't been this. Or maybe whose children are young, but you just your husband's not in the picture anymore, or you know he's never going to be this. Keep praying for him. God can change a heart. But also know, God is a father to the fatherless. So come to this church and let God be the father of your children. Let the men of this church step in and stem the gap. God is gracious. And there are examples in this congregation and elsewhere of children who've grown up without that kind of dad, who are lovely people, thriving in the grace of God. The gospel is much bigger than the failures of your husband. That's married women. What about single men? First of all, 1 Timothy 2 isn't about married men. It's, It's a word to all men. So, Be a conduit for God's blessings to this church by living out this sermon. But I also challenge you to take small steps to care for the women of this church. I'm just talking about basic stuff like 
get the door for a woman. If you're in a crowded room or a train, offer your seat to them. I haven't been to a college and career Bible study, but this Wednesday, the guys better be sitting on the floor and the girls in the chairs, okay? And make sure that you honor the women of this church when you're talking about them with just the guys. Whether it's your wife, that's true for men who's it's your wife, or for the single men and how you talk about the girls. Not single men. I also want to say a word to the single ladies, all the single ladies. <laughs> if, you're a stage, if you're at a stage in life where you are looking for a spouse, look for a man who will be a shield for you, who finds his shelter in Christ, and who will labor in prayer for you and your future family. Not a perfect man. You're not going to find that. But if you look for that, it'll be far more important to your marriage than his winning personality, his sense of humor, his hobbies, his affability, or his career path. And if you're in the stage of life where you're not looking for a spouse, can I ask you to pray Pray for me, pray for the other elders, pray for the men of this church. 1 Timothy 5.5 addressed women in exactly this stage of life, and it said they should set her, she should set her hope on God and continue in supplications and prayers night and day. We as elders, we as men need need your prayers. So pray regularly, earnestly. Pray that the men of this church would be righteous men who find their shelter in Christ, offering effective, unhindered prayers, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling for the good of our families and for the good of this church. I opened with the jarring image of a man shielding his family from an intruder. But I want to close with another image. It's the men of our church standing with uplifted hands in dependence, interceding on behalf of our families, interceding on behalf of our church with holy hands, without anger and quarreling, and therefore providing a different kind of shelter a shelter for this church, a shelter for our families to thrive. May God give us grace that that may be so.